Thank you. And good morning. So yes, Psalm 46. It's the second in our series, as uh, Quincy said, in Psalms for Life. Um, if you've looked at the Psalms before, you'll have noticed that often there is an inscription at the top of the Psalm. This might give some indication as to why the Psalm was written and by whom. Sometimes a theme is mentioned, and then there are some perhaps more technical notes, perhaps for the musicians who would play and sing or how it should be sung. And Psalm 46 is no different. So before we read it, let's look at the inscription. Firstly, we're given a theme. God, the refuge of his people, or God, the fortress. If nothing else, this will he help you to see whether I keep on track uh, this morning and keep true to the word. Next, we find, for the choir director, or some say for the chief musician. There are just over one-third of the Psalms with this notation and quite simply indicates that these are Psalms that should be sung. The choir director or chief musician would have led the temple worship, so this and many other Psalms would have been used in corporate worship just as we did this morning. It may have been a set piece sung by a choir as part of the inscription notes set to Alamoth, which probably means sung by soprano voices. And then finally, it says a song, which pretty much confirms it should be sung. You'll have spotted, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, that I skipped over the note, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And that's because I want to just focus on this for a few moments. And we will get to read the psalm, I promise. So who is this Korah who had sons? Well, Korah lived during the period when the Israelites were between Egypt and the Promised Land. So while they were in the wilderness. He was born into the tribe of Levi, the same as Moses and Aaron. And he was a rebel. Now, immediately, I have some sympathy with him because I'm a bit of a rebel myself. I don't particularly like being told what to do. I generally have an opinion, which, of course, is right most of the time. <laughs> and I'm happy to share my opinion. I have a healthy respect for leaders, but I'm happy to challenge them too. And that's what Cora did. He challenged the leaders. Now, even by my standards, I think he may have gone over the top in how he presented this challenge. He gathered 250 leaders with him, came to Moses and Aaron and said, you've gone too far. The people are holy. God is with us. Who, why do you exalt yourselves over us? I don't think Korah was being altruistic and acting out of concern for the people of Israel. It's pretty clear that he thought he could do a better job. And he was clearly a leader. He gathered 250 others to his cause. Now Moses accepts the challenge and tells them to gather 
the following day at the tent of meeting. And he says, let God decide who's going to be leader. By the following day, Korah had gathered a much larger crowd. And this is what it says in Numbers 16. They stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. God then speaks to Moses and says, stand back, I'll consume the lot of them. Now, interesting, Moses doesn't say, yeah, go ahead, they deserve it. He falls on his face and cries out for the people. Sorry, my thing's going. He says, don't let the sin of one man cause you to be angry with the whole congregation. I've really messed this up now, haven't I? So God says, all right, let them go back to their tents, but tell the people to keep well clear of Korah's tents and those of his two key conspirators. Moses then addresses all the people and says, if Korah and the rest live full lives, then the Lord has not sent me. But if God does something different, like maybe opens up the ground and swallows them, then it's pretty clear that God has spurned them. Guess what happened? There's what appears to be a very localised earthquake. And Korah, his two co-conspirators, and their families are all destroyed. But the sad thing is, the people didn't learn anything from this experience. And they went on to blame Moses and Aaron for the death of Korah and the rest. And there's a really sad verse at the end of number 16. It's not that sad. It says, Those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. You wouldn't want that on your epitaph, would you? Now, why am I telling you this? Well, we have a psalm written by the sons of Korah. How can that be? They, were all, they all died. Well, we find out later in Numbers. In Numbers 26, it says, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, so that they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. We don't know how, but they didn't die. And then we find out a little bit more in Chronicles in 1 Chronicles 9, we read, Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah, and his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, and their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. They were doorkeepers. And if we flick ahead to Psalm 84, also a psalm of the sons of Korah, we find verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere or outside 
I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But the sons of Korah weren't all doorkeepers. Again in Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 6, we read, Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord, after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. These are those who served with their sons. From the sons of the Kohathites were He-Man, the singer. It doesn't quite fit, does it? He-Man, the singer. But anyway, that was his name. The son of Joel, the son of several others, then the son of Korah. And in Psalm 46, these sons of Korah write a song expressing that God is their refuge even in the face of earthquakes, the very thing that happened to their father or grandfather or great-grandfather back through the generations. Why is this important? Well, there's no resentment or bitterness towards God for the way he dealt with Korah and his rebellion. Maybe they're grateful the fact that the sons survived and were able to live. But they lived by giving themselves in service to God, not railing against him. The doorkeepers were able to say, I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Because those tents disappeared under the earth and were never seen again. They are able to say, even though the earth shakes and the mountains disappear, it's okay because God is my refuge. I'm not relying on physical things to be my refuge. I'm trusting God. I came across a great quote from a blog on Korah and his rebellion. I didn't expect to find a blog on that, but I did. And this is what it says. To lead his people Israel, God had selected men of his own choosing. God had no interest in holding a popularity contest, collecting resumes, or letting someone appoint himself to the position of prophet, priest, or leader. Korah's problem was not that he was unqualified, humanly speaking, for the position, but that he was arrogant, stiff-necked, and self-promoting. Korah, attempting to install himself as the leader, ironically claims that Moses set himself above the Lord's assembly. It's a classic case of the guilty person accusing someone else of his own misdeed. But God did not call Korah, he called Moses. God calls whom he chooses and equips them for service. Actually, God did call Korah, just not to lead the people of Israel. He was called to be a Levite, part of the priesthood to serve the people. Interesting that it wasn't enough for him, but it was enough for his sons. And as we come to read Psalm 46, there is one other inscription that appears in the psalm, splitting it into three sections, or possibly verses, and it's the word selah. It probably means pause and think, and may have had a musical interlude, a bit of music in the background, as you pause and think. I will, I will pause briefly, but because we're going to 
pause a bit longer and think about the psalm. I'm not going to leave it very long. So let's read Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Cease striving or be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's look in a little more detail at each of these sections. Verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength. The dictionary definition of refuge is quite simple. A place that gives protection or shelter from danger, trouble, unhappiness, etc. As Levites, the sons of Korah would have had a good understanding of what refuge meant. Just before the people of Israel entered the promised land, God gave them instructions as to how the land should be divided up between the tribes. And those tribes were told they had to release 48 cities for the Levites to live in. Of those cities, six were designated cities of refuge. These weren't for hiding, but for living. And they were for those, they were places of protection for anyone who had taken a life by accident. There were strict procedures to follow, But if the person was found to be innocent, then they were free to live in the city in a place of safety and protection. Now, it's fairly easy to understand how a city or a particular place can be a refuge. But how can God be our refuge? Well, he is a person of refuge rather than a place. When I was growing up, my two older brothers were my refuge. Now, don't get me wrong, they were as rotten to me as any older brother can be. I remember one occasion when they played catch with me in the lounge in our living room. Literally, I was the ball, and they could throw me from one to the other because they were strong enough. They were five, six years older than me. 
But if I was in trouble, I didn't need to find a place. I needed to find a brother. And then I valued their strength. And I was no longer afraid. Now that's fine when you're a child and your big brother can look after you. But when you grow up, it's not quite so straightforward. You hit challenges that aren't solvable by brute strength. They might be physical or mental or spiritual, but you can't give them a black eye and send them packing. And that's where God is able to be our strength. Because he's able to affect any and every situation, whatever it might be. And to illustrate this, the writers use the earth, this physical enormity that we live on and is to us solid and secure, even if the earth should change, the mountains slip into the sea and the waters roar, we still don't need to be afraid because God is even more powerful than those things. And if he can be relied on in that situation, he can be relied on in any situation. You may have noticed I headed this section past and present, and I haven't mentioned either. Well, I want to touch again on the sons of Korah. They identified that God is a very present help in trouble. They were shaped by their understanding and experience of God not by their past. Remember, their distant relatives were orphaned. They would have been brought up by some other Levite family and no contact possible with parents, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins and the extended family that was so important in Jewish life and culture. They could have grown up bitter, hurt, resentful, untrusting of God, afraid of God, But instead, we find declaring that God is their refuge. How are you with your past? Do you find yourself playing the what-if or if-only game? On Friday, the 28th of October, 1977, just four weeks after Liz and I were married, I dived into a swimming pool hit my head on the bottom, bled quite profusely, fractured my skull and ended up in hospital. The following day, I was allowed home and apart from having to be watched in case of concussion, I apparently suffered no ill effects. (laughs) Ten years earlier... In July 1967, a girl called Johnny dived into Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, misjudged the depth of the water, and also suffered a fracture. But hers wasn't the skull. Hers was between the fourth and fifth vertebrae, resulting in paralysis from the shoulders down. During her two years of rehabilitation, According to her autobiography, Johnny, she experienced anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. However, during occupational therapy, she learned to paint with a brush between her teeth and began selling her artwork. 
She also writes, and to date she has written over 40 books, recorded several musical albums, starred in an autobiographical movie of her life, and is an advocate for people with disabilities. And do you know what the opening words are of her biography on Wikipedia? Johnny Erickson Tada is an evangelical Christian. Now, I've read her autobiography, and I know she played the if-only game. But amazingly, she didn't allow that to define her, and she found her refuge in God. A few years after my incident, Liz and I were watching the movie of Johnny's life. And up until that moment, Liz hadn't realised the full impact of what could have happened to me. But watching that film... She played the what-if game. We may never know why things happen to us. And part of our problem is that we try to answer that why question. And because we don't find an answer, we can't or won't or don't move on. And the place we need to move on to is finding our refuge in God. It's not easy, but it is possible. The sons of Korah did it, Johnny Erickson did it, and in a less dramatic way, Liz and I have done it. Inevitably, how we are now is the cumulative effect of many things. Our upbringing, our environment, our friends, our experiences, our challenges, our successes, our failures. We can allow them to define us. But if we do, we will find ourselves hiding behind resentment, lack of trust, fear of failure, and avoiding close relationships. Because our security has been placed on things that ultimately let us down. Alternatively, we can determine to trust God in all these things, even if we don't understand why they have happened. And that enables us to declare with the sons of Korah that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. I want to show you a video clip now, and it's, it's uh, a song by Johnny Erickson, sung by her. Uh, it's the title song of a film called Alone, Yet Not Alone, uh, from 2014, and clips in the video are from the film. Um, if we, could we have the lights down? And I'd really like you to listen to her prayer at the beginning before she sings. We are the ones who run to you when we are weak. And uh, you know this body, you form this body. This is a quadriplegic body that is broken. My lungs are limited, but there's this fine balance between presenting to you all of my weakness and thinking that it can't be done. I don't want to think that it can't be done. And so, Father, I pray that you will uh, mitigate any crackiness in my voice, um, any age in my voice, any tiredness in my voice, and please give me your strength. Uh, these words talk about, in your strength, I find my own. And so, uh, make that my prayer. I make that my prayer, Lord God. I'm alone. Yet not alone God's the light 
isn't it, when someone is not defined by their past, 
but finds refuge in God. Let's move on to the next section, verses 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In immediate contrast to the image in the previous verses of waters roaring and foaming, here we find a river that brings gladness. It's interesting in relation to the city because the city of God, Jerusalem, does not have a river. So here the writers are looking forward prophetically to the river spoken of by Ezekiel that flowed from the temple and got deeper and deeper, bringing life wherever it went. And then in Revelation, in chapter 22, we find the river of the water of life coming from the throne of God, bringing fruitfulness and healing. And all this in the new Jerusalem, this place where God dwells and brings light and life to all. These sons of Korah have recognized that dealing with the challenges of life will one day come to an end. They see a city that will never be affected by earthquakes or volcanoes because God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. Nothing can shake this eternal city. And then I love this next verse, that God will help her when morning dawns. The negative in me so says, so he's not going to help later on in the day. But in Revelation, we find that there is no day and night, because there is no sun. God is the light of this city, and it's always day. Then we see something of the transition between what we're experiencing now and this glorious future. And we also get a glimpse of the power of God in comparison with the power of the challenges we face. Here, by reference to nations and kingdoms, which the writers would have clearly understood as some of the biggest challenges they faced with invasions and wars all around them. But somehow, they have understood the vast chasm there is between these warring nations and the power of God. He raises his voice and the whole lot disappears. The earth melts. And that heralds in this new kingdom. In fact, a new heavens and a new earth with the old passing away. And then, as if to reinforce where our security lies, they announce that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Why the God of Jacob? Now, we could do a whole series on Jacob, and maybe we should. But briefly, let me highlight one thing. Jacob wasn't a very nice person. He was selfish, scheming, deceitful, treacherous, untruthful, and definitely not our choice of the person that God should bless. One day we find Jacob on the run from his father, fleeing from his brother and all alone. The sun goes down, he grabs a stone for a pillow and goes to sleep. God appears to him in a dream. And while we might expect God's message to be pretty clear that he should change his ways and be reconciled to his father and brother, that's not what God says. This is what God says. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. God is a God of grace, and that is clearly evident in his dealings with Jacob. I don't know about you, but when I describe Jacob as selfish, scheming, deceitful, treacherous, untruthful, I think, you know, that sounds a little bit like me. I don't deserve to have God as my refuge, to have a place in the future where I dwell with God forever and never have to worry about anything ever again. No, I don't deserve it, and that is the point. God is our refuge, not because we deserve it, but because he wants us to be in close relationship with him forever. Let's move on to the next section, verses 8 to 10. Come, behold the works of the Lord. These are slightly different to the previous verses in that they stated a fact about the future. There is a river. Whereas here, we're invited to behold the works of the Lord, which would indicate we can see them now. But these are things we see only in part. Wrought desolation, wars to cease, bows breaking, chariots burning. We see something of God's intervention as the church prays, but it's no way complete. And that makes it hard to prove to an unbelieving world that God does intervene. It's a bit like healing. We know that through Jesus' death on the cross, he carried our sins and iniquities, but also our diseases. He rose with healing in his wings. And yet when we pray, we don't see everyone healed. But we do see some. And so we keep praying. We maintain our faith in God, our healer. It's much easier to believe in something that is yet to come. So we can wax lyrical about the new heavens and the new earth and how wonderful it's going to be because there's nothing I need to do now that shows I believe it. But if I believe that God heals today, then I have to step out and pray for healing. Or if I believe in spiritual gifts, I have to bring a word of knowledge or prophecy. And even though I'm standing here looking out there at a chain-link fence, and I see this picture in my mind, I think maybe God is speaking to us. And it's the problem of the now and the not yet. We see some evidence of these things now, but it's not yet guaranteed. And we have to live in that slightly awkward place, which at times feels really uncomfortable. Then we read, be still and know that I am God, which can be a sort of seem like a pastoral encouragement from God. We imagine him saying, don't worry about these things, I am in control. That may be true, but it's not primarily what this means. 
It's not primarily a word of comfort to those in the war in which God is not intervening or those still being hit by the arrows and spears of the enemy or us in that awkward place where we keep praying for healing and don't, nothing seems to be happening. As Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary on this psalm, it is a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world. Quiet. In fact, leave off. That may remind you of a similar occasion in the New Testament. Jesus was asleep in a boat with his disciples when a storm blew up and started to flood the boat. They woke him up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Thanks for waking me up. I've now sorted it. No, he didn't. He said, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? That's a bit harsh, isn't it? But you see, with Jesus in the boat, they were in no more danger when the storm was raging as when it was calm. And we have to live in that place all the time. Because there may be storms raging all around us, but we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Are we going to trust him? Possibly with our lives. Are we going to refuge in him? Sorry for those who are offended by me using a noun as a verb. Are we prepared to live in such a way that demonstrates we trust God regardless of what is happening around us and yet still have faith that he will intervene and maintain that faith even when he doesn't? That's the challenge of the now and the not yet. About four years ago, Bill Johnson preached about enduring faith around the time his father died of cancer. He had prayed and prayed for healing, but still his father died. The essence of his message was, God is good all the time. And that is a foundational truth we cannot change. Everything must be set against that plumb line even if we cannot reconcile what we see with that truth. That truth always wins. And we must live with that mystery rather than doubt God. That's what Johnny demonstrated when she prayed in the recording studio, let this quadriplegic body sing, even though the lungs have limited capacity. Even though this body is old, let it sing. And she did that not in the quiet of her own home, but in the public setting of the studio with all the technicians around her. And if for some reason God answered no, then she would live in that awkward place of the now and still believe for the not yet. And then, as a final reminder of what the reality is, regardless of what we may see around us, The sons of Korah remind us, I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Let's live like the sons of Korah, like Johnny Erickson, like Bill Johnson, and find God 
as our refuge, our strength, our stronghold in all the challenges of life. Amen. <laughs>